Hello and welcome to All Back to Bowie's show 18, waiting for the gift of sound and vision, the media in Scotland. Uh, this was a really fascinating show. Um, we had a, a, a terrific team. Unfortunately, we couldn't get Joyce McMillan, who had to drop out at the last minute. So it is a little bit um, male-heavy, which doesn't really reflect the media, particularly the new media in Scotland. But I think we've covered an interesting range of bases. We have a fantastic provocation from Derek Bateman, whose Bateman Broadcasting is another podcast that you should definitely check out. We have Ian McWhorter, uh, um, speaking partly about Referendum TV and about his role in the Sunday Herald. We have uh, Ross Cahoon um, uh, talking about the National Collective and also Peter Arnott talking about his blogging. Um, it really, I think, covers a lot of territory and it opens up this fascinating area um, of... Uh, being the media, as, as Ian McQuota puts it. Don't complain about the media, be the media. Really interesting. Uh, also, some very funny songs from Playing Politics and um, some lovely poetry from Rob McKenzie. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good show. Uh, so please, uh, sit back and enjoy Waiting for the Gift of Sound and Vision, the media in Scotland. Everybody, we look like we're about to do a duet. We do. Um, first things, a massive, massive uh, welcome to you all. To our, uh, I don't know what number of all back to boys we're on by now, but um, 19. we're 19. 19. And a 19. Um, I am Fiona, and this is my co-host Kirsten. Uh, and we're going to start. I guess most of you probably know the backgrounds to all back to boys. Uh, when David, our pal David, sent uh, someone to ask Scotland to stay. So we decided to take that quite literally, and here we are. If you close your eyes and imagine really, really hard that we're currently in his Manhattan yurt. Um, so in the spirit of all things Indie Ref, we are going to start with a question for the audience, probably the most important question uh, at this particular time with one month to go. And that question is, do you agree that it's Bowie or Bowie? <laughs> now, we've been collecting votes at every single All Back to Bowie's as we go. Um, and we do that extremely rigorously with a show of hands. Yeah. So, can, <laughs> can we have hands up for Bowie? One, two. There's nobody from the Electoral Commission in, right? Because this is going to be... Wow, that's... that's 31 for the podcast. 31. Uh, and hands up for Bowie. Some of those are the same hands. <laughs> There's no undecideds in here. 20. That's very, very close. That's, uh, that, that's actually, I would, I would say, given our, our polls, that's the closest... Uh, Closest yeah. swing to Bowie we've had so far. Um, At the very end, we'll announce the exciting uh, winner of the Bowie Bow debate. So, the next thing we're going to do is actually ask something of you, the audience. If you can find in your pockets, handbags, any piece of paper that you can write on. Possibly your ticket. Possibly your ticket, your bus ticket, your Bowie's ticket. 
uh, and we're going to ask you to have a wee think um, throughout the show about something and David will come and collect your bits of paper and we'll read some of them out. Uh, that's David Gregg, not David Bowie. Uh, <laughs> that said, we do, we do hope that you never, just David never know. He sticks his head in the back sometimes. He, he likes to keep a very low profile. So. Our, now, generally this is a statement, a dot, dot, dot statement that we ask you to complete. All of the statements that we've asked at every single All Back to uh, Bowie's. I listened to the podcast of the last one I did and I was booed when I said Bowie's, pointedly. Um, we, uh, they will all be written down, even the ones that aren't uh, read out today, and they'll all be collected in the National Library of Scotland in their Indiref archives. So watch your spelling. Um, our finish the sentence for today, because we're talking about all things media today, is very simple. My top story is dot dot dot. So next up, um, there's kind of a similar format at our All Back to Bowie's, and we always uh, try as much as possible to get a balance of views. Today, we always ask someone to come and do a polemic to give us a provocation. We thought, who could come and give us a provocation when we're talking about the media? And that person was Derek Bateman. Please put your hands together. Thanks for being clever enough to clap before you hear me. Um, I'm supposed to be provocative, so I was going to say that Ian McQuirtis' column in the Herald is crap. <coughs> crap change. What I normally do when I do uh, public meetings, which is a new and terrifying experience for me, being used to being behind a microphone in and invisible, as it were, in a studio. I usually just busk it, because it's about the referendum, it's about Scotland. When I do that, it's just a kind of stream of consciousness, but it also means I tend to go on a bit. So on the train through today, I actually wrote something down for a change. So this is a festival fringe first for you. This is <clears throat> what I wrote. Taking over the piece, the mainstream media in the referendum has failed the people. When it was called to arms in the most important national debate of our lifetime, it was found wanting. It was revealed as reactionary, backward-looking, grudging, and in many cases downright hostile to one side of the argument. When a new world was offered to the Scots, whatever your view, good, bad, right, wrong, they turned away. Instead of exploring and questioning, they fell into the age-old default role of cavil, complain, and corrupt. There are nuggets of genius out there, and they stand out partly because of the mediocrity around them. The mainstream followed the same dreary route they did in covering Holyrood, undecided if it was Strathclyde Region, Renewed, or a mini-me Westminster. The very idea that it will be new, different and bold discombobulated the inflexible male geezer mentality of the political hacks. They prefer to be spoon-fed in child-sized bites by party and campaign machines. Reporting becomes a parody of this good, that bad. Concepts of democracy, engagement, empowerment, enlightenment are beyond the ken of derivative, low-brow, instant headline journalists. Last week, as an example, I attended the launch of a new book examining constitutions and how Scotland might devise its own to re-engage the government system with the people and transform our society, learning from examples from history. It was written by the legal expert Elliot Bulmer. One mainstream journalist turned up. Virtually nothing appeared in the conventional media. Yet a year ago, 
The same man was the subject of days of bitter coverage when Better Together began briefing that a perfectly routine piece he had written appeared in the Herald without specifying it was commissioned by Yes and he was paid £100. That's a third of the day payment, by the way, in the House of Lords, if you get lucky enough to get there. The vicious and the irrelevant makes news, the intellectual and the challenging doesn't. The Times has no yes-leaning columnist, none. Almost every story is led by the phrase, in another setback for Alex Salmond. A major oil field was discovered in a major setback for Alex Salmond. Employment's up in another setback for Alex Salmond. And this morning, a four-point improvement in the support for yes is billed as, no side still ahead. It's true, but... In the BBC, the top-down London-dominated mindset prevails. In the two years leading up to this momentous vote, a quarter of journalists were sacked, and the management said the referendum was just another election. It was business as usual. No need for a specialist referendum unit that people like me argued for inside the BBC. Uh, that was until the London management read the runes of dissent after we got a new director general, uh, the, the, the complaints were coming from Civic Scotland, whom the new Director-General actually met, quite a lot of those people, and decided to impose on the BBC in Scotland a referendum unit and provided half a million pounds or five million pounds, whatever it was, to pay for that. It did not come from the, the Scottish management. The patchy quality of journalism and the constant emissions from coverage of stories appearing online, the anti-Salmon tabloid bulletins and the lack of flair have led a huge number never to trust the BBC again. That is a small national tragedy, in my opinion, as a supporter of the BBC. My view is we get the politicians we deserve and we get the media we deserve. And they're on bended knee at the moment to our London hegemony, afraid to speak boldly and on behalf of our country. Only with independence, when the old certainties disappear, will we get the new media that we deserve. Thank you. Thank you very much, Derek. Uh, so, um, today's, today's panel is called uh, Waiting for the Gift of Sound and Vision, the Media in Scotland. Uh, I'm going to, once our stage setup has, has been sorted out, I will, um, I'll invite our panel up to the stage. We tried to, um, we tried to take in quite a broad spectrum of, um, of outlets um, today. So, uh, Derek will be joining us back on the panel. Derek has obviously a history, a long history in broadcasting. Uh, we've also got the Sunday Herald columnist, uh, author of The Road to Referendum and television presenter Ian McWhirter. Um, playwright Peter Arnott, who's a, an all back to Bowie's stalwart, is here to... See, I said Bowie's there. I'm just, I'm just all over the place. I'm swinging one side and the other. Court me, court me for your vote. I'm a floating voter. <laughs> what are we doing? Um, and uh, yes... Uh, and uh, Ross Cahoon, who founded National Collective, um, the Artists for Independence website, which has um, become a kind of a blogging hub. Uh, some of the things we're, we're hoping to talk about today um, include uh, the, the rise of new media um, in, in, the, in the last couple of years. And... Um, Uh, this is all quite exciting, and uh, yes. So um, essentially, I'll, I'll ask our I'll ask our panelists to come up to the stage if we're 
we're all right. Yep, yep. Uh, I will be checking my phone throughout it because I'm bored and a Twitter addict. No, because uh, we're going to keep this to a very strict time because obviously we have to be have to be out fairly fairly quickly. So. Um, they're already on the stage. There we go. So Ross Cahoon, Ian McWhorter, Peter Arnott, and the return of Derek Bateman. Now, I'd like to start off by asking our panellists to respond to Derek's, uh, well, our other panellists to respond to Derek's um, provocation. Uh, so we'll start off with Ross, just because you're there and kind of move around, and uh, then we'll have some other questions. Because we do keep to a very tight time in the Big Bowie yurt, um, we aren't going to have time for questions, but this is possibly a time to think about your sentences. We will be reading those out towards the end. Uh, my top story is, and if there's anything that comes up that you'd like to respond Respond to that's that's the good place as any to to do so. So Ross, if you'd like to start us off by responding to Derek's provocation. Thanks, Kirsten. Um, can I just start with asking a question? How many people here are aware of National Collective? Okay, that's quite a large chunk of the room. <laughs> um, okay, well, for those that aren't, um, we are part of the cultural campaign for independence. Um, now, one of the, the kind of key things that I think about National Collective that not many people realise is that our movement is entirely defined by how people want to get involved with the campaign. Um, we started off with a plan. Now, artists are notoriously not very good at organising, um, but as you can see, the referendum has brought people together in a way um, that hasn't really been seen before. Um, so what I would, I would say is, from my personal view, um, our kind of interaction with the press over the past uh, year has been reasonably problematic. Um, we found it very difficult to get public uh, to get coverage initially. Um, now, partly that to do with that was to do with the fact that we aren't really that well known. A lot of our members are grassroots activists. Um, they didn't have a public profile already, um, but with time, um, we managed to kind of. Um, start to get some coverage. Uh, we had a breakthrough in covering a story about a guy called Ian Taylor, who is the CEO of Vittel Group. Now, he'd had some kind of several dodgy dealings in the past, um, and then once once we'd kind of broke this story, it went viral. It was, it was reasonably ignored by the press um, up until we'd actually covered it. Um, but once we'd covered it, we received legal threats, and the press started to actually take a little bit of notice, to, notice of us. <laughs> Um, but yeah, um, I think that the only way that you can actually change the media is to become the media. Um, so ultimately, that's where national collectives come in. Um, now, we've put on events around the country. Um, some of the things we've been trying to do is we've been trying to kind of put forward a different way of looking at politics. And we think that one of the best ways to engage people um, is through creativity. Um, but in addition to that, there's been a lot of kind of young political thinkers, young writers, people who wanted to write about politics. Um, but most importantly, these people were have been alternative voices, people who didn't have a voice before, people who were disenfranchised, um, and people who have now been put to the fore. Um, and that's something I'm quite proud of in what we've done with National Collective. Um, but yeah, I think ultimately the only way that we can change the media in this country uh, is, is to present a new way of doing things. And I think that's something the National Collective has helped to achieve. Ian McWhorter. 
Uh, well, I'd just like to thank Derek for his unsolicited testimonial to the quality of my scribblings in the Herald and the Sunday Herald. The feeling is entirely mutual, Derek. No, well, I mean, I, I, I subscribe to a great deal of what he says, um, though I would, I would disagree that the BBC is institutionally biased um, against, uh, against independence. Um, and I worked in the BBC for a very long time. I started in journalism in 1979 in the uh, devolution unit that was set up uh, in uh, uh, Kelvin Grove uh, to, uh, to cover that, that event. And in my experience, the BBC does try to uh, observe its charter obligation to balance and does this pretty rigorously, always giving equal say uh, to either side in the debate or in, uh, in elections. Where the problem here, though, is that the BBC, because it doesn't take any editorial line, the BBC tends to take its agenda from the press. Um, uh, and this, this happens in Scotland and in England. They will, you know, for, for daily news and current affairs programmes, they'll get a list of the, they'll get all the papers out in front of them, you know, Telegraph and the and the Mail and the Scotsman and the Herald, and they'll kind of distill what appear to be the big issues of the day as are being, uh, you know, front-paged by these organs. And, um, you know, normally that works reasonably well because there is a diversity of opinion, except in a situation like this, uh, where you have the vast majority of the press in Scotland takes a very clear uh, line against independence. Uh, I mean, I get a lot, of, a lot of journalists coming from Scandinavian countries uh, who are bewildered that this um, referendum could be happening at all in this form because in Norway, for example, there is a charter obligation, uh, sorry, a constitutional obligation for the press to express diversity of opinion. They would think it's unconstitutional to have a referendum when the weight of opinion is so overwhelmingly on one side. So I think the problem the BBC has in this environment is it tends to pick up its agenda, what it thinks is important, from the day's papers because it doesn't, you know, it tries not to take a an independent editorial line itself. And therefore, you'll tend to get, as Professor John Robertson of Western Scotland Universities uh, indicated in his research, you'll tend to get a news agenda which is dominated by, um, well, what we, we call in the business the blowjobs, uh, blowjob stories, which is, you know, latest blow for Alex Salmond or <laughs> blow for yes over, over oil, uh, blow for yes over trident, blow for yes over currency. It's the same thing day after day, and they do this very consciously. I mean, this is how journalism works. They look for the, the latest, uh, look for, for stories which will be factually correct, but will be spun in a direction that reflects their editorial uh, objectives. You take an example, for example, like oil, which was reported last week, a new blow for, new blow for Salmond on oil, new blow for the Yes campaign on oil as oil revenues collapse. To 4.5 million. Yes, campaign found out in oil was one of the one of the, one of the slogans I, I I noticed. In fact, there's a huge oil boom taking place see <laughs> in the Brent field uh, and the Clare field. Uh, it's not quite as big as the 1970s, but it's damn big. But because uh, they're or, they have sold themselves to the idea that the oil is running out, that it's very volatile, and that it's a blow for the Alex Salmon, it tends to be presented in that way. So the BBC is faced with a difficult problem here. Uh, it looks at the press, so it's going, going to get people onto Good Morning Scotland. What's it going to do? It'll say, well, this is the oil story, and there's a new row over oil, and it's a blow for Alex Salmon. They'll have Alex Salmon on, looking at my hard time about oil. So I don't think the BBC is institutional, institutionally biased. I think it, it observes its charter obligation, but it takes its agenda from a press which is dominated not just by a unionist press, but the, the, the entire press environment in Scotland is largely uh, wholly owned by UK and London-based 
uh, media conglomerates. And that's where I would identify the problem as far as bias is concerned. There's lots of other things we'd like to talk about, like broadcasting after independence. I hope we'll have a chance to speak about that later. But that's all I'll say for now. I need both of them. Uh, <laughs> Peter Arnett, if you'd just like to respond to Derek's provocation first. Well, well just very quickly, I th- just to fo- follow on a little from what Ian was saying, um, I think that, and, and this perhaps leads us towards aspirations for a different kind of media, I think part of the thing is that the BBC's model of balance is extremely creaky and extremely easy to manipulate. Um, there's the, basically, you have, a, you, ha- you have a model which, which follows a kind of arithmetical time slottery, which, for example, on climate change, which, which is within, um, in, uh, it, it makes it look like there's a controversy about climate change. There is no controversy about climate change. But because they have balance, it has to make it look like there is. Do you see what I mean? So balance can be used to distort, and people are very adept. Um, uh, media, um, political organizations, large corporations are extremely adept at using the institutional rules that govern broadcast media to, against the truth, because it's not difficult. It's, it's not rocket science to do. And so, that's, so that is also you know, what is happening. I agree, in a sense, with Ian. I don't think there's evil intent going on. I just think there's a kind of... Neither do I think there's necessarily naivety, but I think there's a kind of helplessness, a kind of cultural helplessness somewhere deep in our media, which uh, reflects my experience as a playwright working for BBC Radio, for example, as well as, well as it does the, the, the news agenda. There's just a... There's a there's a, there's a need for renewal, and guess what? It's coming. Um, Derek, would you like to respond to anything anyone's said? Yeah, yeah just, uh, just briefly, because I think uh, one of the, the issues that arises here that Ian's right about agenda setting, but it seems to be that a, news or, a proper news organisation does set its own agenda. Yes, you have to report what's happening. I have no problem with that. But you also have to be creative. You have to come up with different concepts, different ways of doing it. I mean, it was almost like a revelation when the BBC decided that they would send, I think it was Alan Little, uh, you know, go, go to Scandinavia and just have a look at their life there, make comparisons. And I, I think he did Finland, Nor- uh, Norway, Sweden, or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, it was quite revelatory. We knew that was going on. But to actually see it and to hear people uh, talking fit Scotland into that context, you may disagree with it, but it was quite a revelation. Now, that, to me, is a simple bit of agenda setting. It requires a budget and some thought process, and not enough of that is going on in an organisation like the BBC. It is far too easy to think in tram tracks, well, I should say this then, but tram tracks, where you're, you're, you're caught in, in the old trick, which is that there are uh, institutions, in this case we've got people like Better Together, uh, you know, who, are, who are linked into the, poli- the Westminster system and the politicians that the journalists know. Uh, you get people like the CBI, been exposed as a kind of pretty much a fraudulent organisation, but for decades they have only had to lift a phone to get something in the in the mainstream media. And so, if you if you spin, spoon feed the journalist, that is what you will end up with. That agenda is being set by people who, for whatever reason, have got their, their own personal agenda and use the newspapers as a kind of conduit to get that out. We need more original thought in our journalism. I'd like to talk about the the printed press for for a while. Um, from a personal point of view, I used to be a journalist. I'm not a journalist anymore. It's not a great time for print journalism at all, uh, anywhere in the world, not just in Scotland. And um, obviously, our own our own national papers are subject to increasingly declining circulation. Um, what I'd like to uh, to get our panel to respond to is just, um, I mean, obviously. The referendum has created a flourishing of 
blogs and uh, online media commentary and podcasts and uh, new new ways of getting the message across. Where do you all see the future of the Scottish media going in in five years? Let's say in five years, post a no vote and post a yes vote. Um, do you think it'll make a difference? And let's let's look at print just now, and then we can look at broadcast um, a little later. Uh, Ross, would you like to start again, just as you're over there? Um, I should say first, I'm a graphic designer, so I love print, but I'm not going to say nice things about print. Um, print um, as a format is probably going to be obsolete within the next kind of 10 to 20 years. Um, I, I can only really see... Um, <laughs> the future of, of newspapers being digital, um, ultimately. Um, there will be a need for uh, newsprint, um, but it's, it's effectiveness and the, the way that you can kind of disseminate content um, is so much more powerful with digital. Um, at National Collective, we did produce a zine, um, and that was, that was printed via newsprint. Um, but it was more a collectible rather than something which would um, be considered a, a long-term format. Um, so yeah, it's it's not. I'm not seeing very positive things about newsprint, but uh, I do love it as a format, and it provides you with a different way of presenting information. Um, but it's one that uh, has had its day, basically. So sorry, sorry if anybody likes newsprint, but. <laughs> Ian, would you? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it certainly has, uh, has been overtaken by the internet and uh, it's had great difficulty in uh, coming to terms with it. And unfortunately, the printed press made a very big mistake by thinking, well, you know, we'll try to colonise the internet and take it over and we'll try and gain readers in that way. Um, and so they put all their content uh, online for nothing and created the expectation that journalism should be free. Journalism can't possibly be free. You won't have journalism if there aren't journalists, professional journalists who are paid to do these things. Unfortunately, the, the newspapers remain the only real uh, organizations uh, with the capacity and the ability and the will, in fact, to do uh, serious independent journalism. Because it is a profession. I mean, it's, it is something which uh, requires uh, a great deal of training and it requires um, a great deal of, uh, you know, Experience in, uh, in in acquiring the kind of information that you see and you take for granted when you see in the press. Most of the stuff on the internet now, sadly, is is largely uh, opinion-driven stuff, uh, which is fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with opinion, but um, you know, you, you will you don't have the kind of weight that you you expect to get uh, from the printed uh, press. The weight of information, also the um, uh, the assessment, the quality control, the aggregation of information that the press has managed to uh, do in the past. Now, what's going to happen? Well, uh, we see the Scottish press is losing about 100,000 sales a year. That's, uh, that's not going to go on for very much longer. I don't know what the future for uh, a lot of the newspapers will be in that environment. They're all moving across to the internet. The Herald, the Sunday Herald, has largely made that transition. At least they claim now to be uh, making profits. They say that 40% of their profits now come from the internet. Uh, they have a, as you probably know, they have a paywall which uh, has a certain amount of uh, subscription. There are other ways of generating revenue uh, online. And there are other ventures. Um, for example, there's the National Enquirer, which you may be aware about. It's a, a venture. Uh, Peter Gocken, who's a, a prominent Scottish investigative journalist, is trying to get uh, an, an online investigative outfit off the ground, and they're trying to raise money for it at the moment. Raising the money is the big problem. Uh, crowdfunding might be uh, possible, but I don't think we're going to see 
uh, from the kind of hand-to-mouth existence of uh, journalistic operations on the internet. I don't see we can yet uh, see anything of the equivalence of uh, the newspapers uh, as far as uh, you know, independent journalism is concerned. I don't want to be too negative about it because actually journalism, there's more journalism today than there ever has been before. There will be more journalism, there's still a great demand for journalism, but unfortunately the business model is not working and trying to make the transition to the internet has proved very much more difficult than anyone expected. Thank you. Can I just check, can everyone at the back hear, hear us? Yes, lovely, lovely. Um, Derek, could you? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure I agree that uh, we'll see an end, to, an end to print, but I think they might become much more specialist products. I mean, you can get your news much more quickly now through, get it through quick, more quickly through Twitter, to be perfectly honest, rather than newspapers uh, online. You get the key stories anyway that way. But I think there were, st- a bit like books, I think, you know, there will still be a demand for, um, for, for, for newsprint, and, and I think I'll probably still want to do that as well. I think the issue really is, uh, Ian touched on, is about investment. Uh, I mean, if you look at the state of the Scottish uh, press, I mean, they're, they're, I think one of the national newspapers, I'm not sure it employs a single photographer uh, anymore, you know. I mean, the, 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 and the, you know, the BBC have done the same thing in reducing the number of journalists, and, and also when they have recruited, they are, you know, in common parlance, kids who are coming in, they're getting rid of people who actually have knowledge and experience and replacing them because, with people who are cheaper. And I mean, that, that is a trend which I just think is, is going to take them downhill. What, one of the issues is if, if there's a no vote, I think a lot of the investment will disappear. I mean, one of the reasons why papers like The Times and The, the Telegraph have got staff here is because of this big referendum story and what's been happening in Scotland. When Scotland disappears off the, the UK radar, as it will with a no vote, very, very quickly, I think the journalists will, will leave as well. There'll be quite a few of them will, will disappear. Um, but I, I mean, I, it seems to me ridiculous in a country our size that you know we have two competing newspapers in the in the major cities. I just, I know there's a really what keeps them afloat is advertising, uh, and classified ads, etc. I, I think, and it's always struck me as odd that we've been unable to 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 sort this problem. That there couldn't be one major, you know, broadsheet quality newspaper with proper investment, uh, and I still. I mean, there'll be commercial reasons for that, but uh, what are the shares currently in Scotsman, the, the, the people who are on the Scotsman, Johnson Press? They were down at seven pence at one point, you know. I mean, that's a, pretty much a, a dead company as far as I'm concerned. But I do think with Yes, I mean, the, there's a lot of optimism with Yes. I mean, this is a, a rich city now, but, you know, like overnight you will find more people coming here, direct flights to places... Uh, embassies being set up, not just consul generals uh, uh, and the like. You will have an international press corps. The newspapers will, at long last, have to have somebody in Brussels. No Scottish... You know, the BBC doesn't have somebody dedicated to Scottish affairs based in Brussels, for which is, is responsible for some 80% of legislation in our country. It is just crazy. It's completely inadequate. And I come back to my point, I do think there's a real possibility that independence will kind of, by kind of force majeure, force the media into providing what, uh, you know, what we're entitled to. Um, I, think, I, I, I think there's a, whether I'm, well, I can entirely share Derek's um, optimism about um, the media post-yes, I think commercial imperatives will still um, probably be in charge. But I do think there is, a, there is somewhere, and this is maybe being pretentious, well, quite possibly, but there's a quite a deep crisis of values it seems to me that uh, that pervades 
uh, our media in general, and the UK, don't the international media, in fact. Um, and I think that the lack of um, the lack of it's not just a lack of money, a lack of advertising, uh, a lack of readers. It also seems to me a kind of lack of will that that they used the once upon a time, and maybe in days of Rethian certainty gone by into the BBC or a liberal agenda, uh, the Washington Post, Woodward and Bernstein, all that kind of thing that you would that there was a. The idea of public purpose, that the media served a public purpose, seems to me to be laughable in most media circles I've come across. Um, the idea that, uh, that, you, that people, uh, you make drama because they want to, uh, in my particular field, because they want to address what might be going on in the hearts and souls and minds of the people who might listen to the play uh, is... Ridiculous! It's just laughable that anyone would think that the media could approach that level of, of, of understanding of the world. And it does seem to me that that we have a there's a as a double whammy, if you like, of the, the advent of new media and a lack of confidence, a lack of clarity, a lack of uh, cultural will, if you like, in the in the upper echelons, seems to have combined to 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 leave us with a very very noisy form of silence. Across our media, because of the things of things, everything seems to be exactly the same. You have fifty-eight television channels, all of which are identical. This, this is kind of choice. Choice by noise seems to be where we are at the moment, and I'm, I'm not sure. And I, and I do hope that Derek's right that, that perhaps a civic renewal of within an independent Scotland, maybe, might be um, something that could help renew uh, a broader cultural um, consciousness. Uh, that would be reflected in, in, the, in the media in a new Scotland. One can only hope. So, where do we go? Um, would uh, would, would uh, state-sponsored media, state-subsidised media, sorry, be, be an option? Would um, What's the likelihood BBC. of form? <laughs> but in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an independent Scotland, past, past the BBC, including, including print journalism, um, would... Uh, are we are we looking at the the setting up of a Scottish broadcasting corporation post post a yes vote? Um, let's let's talk about the, the future. Um, I'm going to ask Ian to start on this one because I think you've got quite a few things you'd like to say on this particular, and then Ross. Well, the first thing about um, post uh, broadcasting post independence is a um, there's been a kind of universal uh, suspicion that people would not be able to see BBC programs after independence. You know, you wouldn't be allowed to see Surgery Come Dancing uh, or that uh, Balamori would would be killed off by independence. Actually, it's already, it's already dead, but uh, I think they weren't aware of that when they wrote that particular headline. I mean, they, uh, the people, obviously the BBC will still be available after independence. Um, if you go to Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, you open any newspaper, you see the same BBC channels and the same BBC programmes available there because the BBC is very concerned to maintain its kind of brand identity internationally and it's very keen in making sure that its programmes get out there. Um, there would be some kind of uh, Scottish Broadcasting Commission, uh, Scottish Broadcasting Corporation set up. There would be a Scottish digital channel after independence, I'm pretty sure about that. Probably several of them because the model of broadcasting, a bit like the model of newspapers, is now radically out of date because of developments on the internet. Most people will be getting their television programs through the internet rather than through uh, terrestrial channels. Uh, with the next few years. I'm sure you all have yourself. You'll, when you look at uh, all these multiplicity of channels uh, and all the different uh, ways of accessing BBC programmes, you can see that the whole environment, the broadcasting environment, is dissolving very rapidly. And that'll lead to, well, some 
some negative uh, developments, actually, because, again, a bit like the newspapers, the BBC in the past did exercise some kind of quality control over broadcasting. Uh, and it did bring on independent voices, and it did invest in quality uh, drama and, uh, uh, and all sorts of uh, factual programming. Uh, it's, it's going to be very difficult for the BBC to, con to survive north or south of the border uh, for very much longer in that very competitive digital environment because a lot of other organizations are going to say, well, we would like some of that uh, license fee money. BBC gets £3.7 billion to run its services, and a lot of people will say that's an anachronism uh, in this multi-channel broadcasting environment. And other people trying to break in, perhaps uh, people breaking in from a different point of view, uh, because uh, I think what's going to happen with uh, broadcasting is you'll get much more broadcasting organizations which have political outlooks, which is going to be something uh, that's difficult for us to get used to. You see it in America with Fox News. I think that'll be happening here, perhaps with independent-minded broadcasting, perhaps not. So there's a crisis of uh, public service broadcasting just as there is a crisis for the traditional press. Um, Ross, if you'd like to respond, we've got about three minutes now uh, for this discussion. Um, so, <laughs> all right, I'll be quick. Yeah, um, that's that. <laughs> okay, uh, so I was just going to focus on the role of the alternative media um, post independence. Now, one of the things I think we've got to be careful of is mistaking um, some of the momentum that we currently have behind the alternative media. Um, it's, it's, it's mainly been caused by the catalyst of the Scottish, in, this, uh, sorry, this, uh, the referendum of Scottish independence. Now, the tricky thing is, after independence, if when we secure it, yes, <laughs> um, we have to keep that momentum going. Um, now, you no longer have a proposition there. You no longer have the thing which is getting all these people galvanised and talking and writing about independence, putting on events. So you have to think of ways how, how you can make it sustainable. Um, now, one of the ways you can do it is crowdfunding. That's the kind of obvious thing. It's the thing a lot of people have been doing. Um, another idea, which I'm actually quite keen on, and if there's any journalists in the room, you might like this idea. It's um, to actually have a subscri subscription-based system which pays the journalists for their contributions rather than going to a mainstream media outlet. So I, I don't know. It's just it's kind of bypassed the middle person. Um, so I don't know. There's some people smiling, so. <laughs> but there we go. Thank you. And um, Peter or Derek, would either of you? Well, yeah. can I just say, very, very briefly, I think you have to be very careful with the BBC uh, after independence, if that's what happens. Uh, I mean, a lot of what the BBC does is superb. And uh, in fact, if you look at the topicals output from uh, Pacific Key, looking at Scottish issues, series about, you know, whether it's the programmes they did in Bannockburn, on shipbuilding on the Clyde. I mean, they're exceptionally good programmes. My, my, my complaint principally about the output is based on news and current affairs. That is where they have, they have let us down, I believe. And that's where the, the biggest cuts came, not the other departments. Massively against news and current affairs. That was a very, very bad strategy, which will have to be reversed. I mean, we'll need a separate broadcasting corporation. I, I agree with that. But I think what we need is something new on the news and current affairs front. The rest of it, I think, is first, first class. Peter, very quickly. Uh, yes, very quickly. I, 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 I would like to see the decision-making process um, for commissioning from a commissioning radio place much simpler and much quicker. Uh, that, that's about it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so um, I'd like to thank, uh, if we just say thanks to our panel, Ross Cahoon, Ian McWhirter, Peter Arnott and Derek Bateman. Um, now, <laughs> you chaps would like to take a seat and... Um,
Thanks, and we're going to bring Fiona back up just now. Um, just a quick reminder to keep on filling in your sentences. My top story is, can be anything, anything you want to, to see. Thanks. Can we have one of the music stands back? Thank you. Um, I had lots of expectations about this morning's panel, but one of them was definitely not hearing Ian McWhorter talk about blowjobs. Sorry for bringing that up again. Uh, so uh, one of the other um, regular items that we have on All Back to Boys is that we always ask a poet to come and give us some spoken word. Uh, today we're delighted to have Rob McKenzie, who I'm even more delighted to say is a fellow resident of the People's Republic of Leith. Please put your hands together for Rob McKenzie. Thanks very much. I'm going to start off with a, an erasure poem. Uh, that's when you get a, a speech or an article and you erase most of it and what you're left with is the poem. And I've done this with various uh, speeches from our political leaders. Typical speeches in Scottish independence. And the first one is David Cameron from a speech he made in February 2012. There is a danger of thinking of Scotland, recruiting ground for the future Conservative Party. I'm not here to make a case. The reason I make the case is I am a classic case. I'm proud to be like so many others. I'm proud to be safer, not just because our tentacles reach. We're richer because we're fairer. We are saving thousands that we and others take for granted. I also understand why people want a Scotland where more people own, where more people keep more, where businesses can. I passionately believe that the people of Scotland believe that, which is why I'm ready for the... Okay. Thank you. Second, uh, Nick Clegg, uh, the Spring Conference of 2012. I want the Scottish people to have Scottish affairs. <laughs> Salmond wants to. I want to. He says this is... I say, it is. He wants to. I want us to. It is our job as Liberals. I may be Deputy Prime Minister. I am as much of a radical as ever. <laughs> Three, uh, Ed Miliband, June 2012. One part of the United Kingdom I want to reflect. We should also talk... I, we have been too nervous to talk. We must talk because people are talking. <laughs> people like Jeremy Clarkson shrug their shoulders, cut off from the rest of Britain. Um, for uh, Alex Salmond, October 2011. People cheering us on, a great asset. We govern, we have governed, we have sheltered, we have frozen, we have held down, we have abolished, we have tried to control, we have a prices and incomes policy, we govern well, we are the SNP. Our focus is on John Swinney and his gas for the next 40 years. We will export, we shall ensure we have created the Scottish future. We face a winter, we already have the best heating, we have invested, we have expanded. 
The Tories call it a big society. I call it no society at all. We are a party with a mission. We shall prevail. <laughs> and I'm going to finish off with uh, this, uh, this poem called The Point, which is a pantoum. There's loads of repetition lines repeating all the time. You'll, you'll hear all the repeated lines. The Point. The point is to repeat. To repeat the point, the point is worth repeating, even if not. We need to stick by the manual, even if useless, to talk about how we think the things we've thought. The point is worth repeating, even if not worth retweeting. We cannot trust ourselves to talk about how we think the things we've thought. Our independence, our politics, our fitting demise are not worth retweeting. We cannot trust ourselves to train a parrot. We need experts to refine our independence, our politics, our fitting demise, like the Prime Minister and his unlikable sidekick. To train a parrot, we need experts to refine our received pronunciation. Repeat after me, we like the Prime Minister and his unlikable sidekick, not to sound desperate, but sing fortissimo with comedy in received pronunciation. Repeat after me, as the point is to repeat, to repeat the point, not to sound desperate, sing fortissimo with comedy. We need to stick by the manual, even if useless. Thanks very much. Uh, it's definitely safe to say that the state of uh, poetry in Scotland is very good. Um, have we got time for the letter from? Yes, I'm getting a big thumbs up. So one of the other things that we've tried to do to both have some um, external opinion and also attempt to get some balance of opinion is ask people to write us a letter from that some have come from Singapore, Brazil. This one today is a little closer to home. It's from uh, Belfast. So apparently there's going to be a big reveal of a, of a video screen here. Actually, no. Somebody did make a joke, I think it was Peter on my first uh, All Back to Boys, that this is what the world would look like if it was organised by playwrights, so welcome. Uh, in case you didn't catch that at the back, we're going to play the audio. Uh, the letter from today is a playwright from Belfast called Martin Lynch. Dinner. <laughs> this is Martin Lynch, uh, and we'll leave you with uh, his audio and once we've done that we'll be asking you for your responses uh, to our statement so if you can make sure you have them thank you very much Hello, I'm Martin Lynch, a playwright, director and producer in Belfast. I'm standing here in the middle of Royal Avenue, our main street. We've been talking to a lot of Belfast people about what the Scottish referendum means to them. And most of them have come back clearly and said it's shite. Uh, everywhere else is more preoccupations than what you have about Scotland and the referendum. Here it's about flags, as we pronounce the word flags. 
uh, the, the Union Jack has come down off the City Hall has caused huge disquiet among the Protestant community. Um, uh, Catholic March tried to walk through the centre of Belfast yesterday and drew huge protests from the Protestant community. So we're preoccupied with flags and, and parading. And in the last year, there's been a lot of racist attacks on foreigners moving to Belfast as there's an increasing number of foreigners coming to Belfast in the last number of years. So uh, a lot of people are preoccupied with those sort of things. But I want the great lengths and great trouble to carry the survey among the people of Belfast. And this was the results in accurate percentage terms. I asked people, uh, what did they think or believe or do they have an opinion on the Scottish referendum uh, debate? And the results were as follows. 46% wanted to know if the Loch Ness monster was real. 28% were saddened that John Connery is getting old. I must say that was mainly the women. 18% wanted to know if Rangers were ever going to get back into the Scottish Premiership. 17% were worried or something we're going to do without Neil Lennon. 34% wanted to visit the Edinburgh Cafe where J.K. Rowling, Rowling wrote uh, Harry Potter. Is that the full percentage yet? No. Okay. 76% were amazed to know one of Glasgow's main statues has a traffic cone on its head. 17% just said they hate the Scots. And not, 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 0.14375 said they were riveted by the Scottish referendum debate. So, what do I think of the Scottish referendum debate? Shite. Absolute shite. Like religion, the Frankie Boyd, Jeremy Paxman, nationalism has caused more wars, more conflict, more disputes, more hurt, more pain than any other single issue since time began. I was thinking about the Scottish referendum is why the fuck am I getting so good for David Gregg and the other all these fuckers sitting in a theatre in Scotland drinking wine, uh, debating the Ponzi notion of the Scottish referendum and here's me soaked to the bollocks. I personally have more concerns, the more important thing to think about than the Scottish referendum. Will Ray Dibby's ever write another great song? Will Barack Obama be completely grey by the end of his term in office? Will the bullet outbreak reach Glen Gormley, where I live, and slaughter me and my kids? Also, I've started a new fruit and vegetable diet to combat diabetes, and the main result is I get erections in the mornings again. I'm the clue that that's happened. Should I pass this on to the doctors or what?
Well, I think it's definitely the most sweary all back to boys we've ever had today. Um, so this is the bit where we ask for all your various bits of paper. Um, we'll read out a couple today. They will all be read out on the podcast. So if you look on the All Back to Boys website, you'll be able to find the podcasts. And they will all go into our archive in the National Library of Scotland. Pass them to the centre. Otherwise, it takes quite a long time. Uh, this is also a good time probably to tell you that... Uh, Seen as you've managed to get the challenge of getting in that very low doorhead, which I have nutted my head on about three times already, uh, when you go back outside, if any of you would like to hang around, we normally as many of the panel and guests as possible, stay for a coffee, beer, um, because we're very aware that you haven't had many opportunities to ask questions yourselves of the panel. Keep writing. Okay. Is this the answer to how many people it takes to read out the... Yep. Yes. Um, and uh, David will be reading all of these out on our podcasts. Uh, the, the all back to, every All Back to Bowie's show is podcast. It's up on our website, allbacktobowie's.com. Um, they're going up slowly, but they are going up, and they're a great listen, uh, so that's worthwhile as well. So... I'm not very good at reading joined up writing. Okay, my top story is the demonization and crushing of the poor and vulnerable. My top story is Toy Story. <laughs> my top story is always found online, never in a newspaper. My top story is that women in Scotland have one month to get out from under the gender attack troops of Westminster and seize the opportunity for creating radical, just and equal spaces for action for our lives, communities and politics. But where are the, uh, the women today? What do we think about... Um, Sorry, sound and vision in a different Scotland. I'm really glad that you asked that. I am chairing Wednesday's panel, which is called Suffragette City, and it's an all-lady lineup, and we're looking at that. <laughs> uh, I think it's, uh, we should also apologise to anyone who was expecting Joyce McMillan this morning that would have given our panel more of a gender balance, but she is quite busy with the fringe and had a last-minute demand to come and review. My top story is, today is a good hair day, Experts claim my hair is better by 70%. My top story, if Scotland votes yes, Yorkshire will be next. <laughs> okay. My top story is what happened to public purpose. My top story is the grassroots movement for yes. Got time for two more? My top story is I think there are a lot more yes voters than we think. Go for it. My top story is that the story needs to change. Listen to us now. And the last one. <laughs> My top story is I parked in an unauthorised area and knowing Edinburgh, I'll get caught. Is that £30 down the drain? <laughs> Sorry. And here we go. My top story is keep hope in your heart. Thank you. So you'll hear the rest of them read out on the podcast. Uh, so we've been all back to Bowie's or Bowie's. Um, and uh, we're back tomorrow. Well, Fiona's back tomorrow uh, when we are 
they were looking at uh, We Could Be Heroes, Sport, Dreams and Independence with Jerry Hassan. Which if we're going to talk about balance, uh, I should make a big confession that tomorrow may be the only time that we have two blue Brazilians on the panel. Take that risk, if you will. <laughs> uh, Jerry Hassan, Ron Ferguson, David Gregg, Fiona Ferguson, um, Miko Berry, Josephine Stillers, Ruth Wishart and Alan Bissett. And then Wednesday, I'm back, Suffragette City, Women in Independence with Elaine C. Smith, Kate Higgins, Tracy Rosenberg, Laura Eaton-Lewis and Julia Todvin. Um, we have a couple of plugs from our guests. Uh, Rob McKenzie, who very modestly said if he sells one of his books, he'll be happy. So let's make him really happy. His book that he read from today is called The Good News. Uh, National Collective are on at the Storytelling Centre with National Collective Presents. Thursday, Friday and Saturday of this week at 9 o'clock, 9 till 10. And Derek B Bateman has his blog and podcasts which are available on batemanbroadcasting.com. All that remains to say is thank you to everyone involved in the show, especially our guests, and an even bigger thank you to all of you for coming along. And come join us in the bar if you don't have to rush off. Thanks very much. Here are the sentences for a show of the 18th of August. And the sentence was, my top story is... My top story is Ethiopian drought and starvation of thousands. My top story is muted condemnation of what's going on in Gaza. My top story is the possibility of a constitution protecting freedom of expression and in an indie Scotland. My top story is the mainstream media is not open to change. Shock, horror... My top story is if Estonia can be it, can do it with one million people, own currency to begin with and success story, why couldn't Scotland? My top story is Toy Story. My top story is the Erasure poem. My top story is blowjobs is a key factor for your future up north. My top story is children living in poverty, food banks. My top story is Scottish Broadcasting Corporation. My top story is, as an editor, I've witnessed publishing houses closing, mass outsourcing to the Middle East, jobs are scarce in my line of work. I'd like to see all media flourish in independent Scotland. My top story is women in Scotland have one month to get out from under the gender attack troops of Westminster and seize the opportunity for getting radical. Just and equal spaces for action, our lives, communities and politics. But where are the absent women today? What do we think about sound and vision in a different Scotland? My top story is, if Scotland votes yes, Yorkshire will be next. My top story is the grassroots movement for yes. My top story is that the story needs to change. Listen to us now. My top story is I parked in an authorised area and knowing Edinburgh, I'll get caught. Is that 30 quid down the drain? My top story is, I think there's a lot more yes voters than we think. Yes, go for it. My top story is, what happened to the public purpose? My top story is the demonization and crushing of the poor vulnerable. My top story is keep hope in your heart. My top story is always found online, never in a newspaper. My top story is today's a good hair day. Experts claim my hair is better by 70%. <laughs>